Good morning again, y'all. My name is uh, Sean, if I don't know you, uh, the teaching pastor here for Redemption Peoria. Um, I'll be out in the lobby afterwards. If this is your first time, you've been coming for a couple weeks. Uh, I say this every week, but I really would love to get to know you. I'm not going to use a mic. Um, I'm more than capable of being loud enough, so if that's odd to you, um, you'll get used to it. I, I, um, I want to jump right in. Um, I want to echo something John had said, that this text is extremely graphic. Uh, and I, I would add, on top of it, it's not just the worst we've seen in the book of Judges, um, but it is probably the worst um, situation and worst language in all of the Bible. Uh, some of the stuff that goes on here really shows the deplorability of the, the human heart at times. Um, and I say that, and, and if you notice, when Faith came up here, she read from the book of James, chapter 1, um, and not from... Um, uh, judges, and obviously we're going to go through five chapters. I'm not going to have her come up here and read five chapters because uh, we'll go through all five of those chapters. But rather, um, she came up and read that text very specifically because here, here's the, the deal: um, when we come to a passage like this, the question that has to be on our hearts has to be one of how is this profitable, right? If 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 Second uh, uh, Timothy is going to tell us that all Scripture is God breathed, uh, chapter three is all it's all God breathed and is profitable for teaching, for reproof for correction, for training in righteousness, that we're going to open the Bible, and it, and it has purpose, it has meaning, it's, it's the reason it's there, is to teach you, to show you, right? When we come across five chapters, like the chapters we're going to read this morning, the immediate question that we have to ask is, what the heck is this doing in the Bible? What is this teaching me right now? What is this, how is this reforming me? How is this reproving me? How is this training me in righteousness, okay? And um, if you can throw James back up, the reason I had her come up and read James is because if you were with us last week, we, we read the story of a guy named Samson, and we saw a microcosm, a small version of the, the essential nature of what sin does, right? And so let me just lay this out for you, because this is a big deal. So um, here's how sin works. Um, each person is tempted when he's lured away and enticed by his own desires, okay? So if we're going to get out the five chapters, let me just break this first uh, part down. Um, it is not a sin to feel the weight of temptation, right? Jesus is tempted, but, but the way we are tempted is there is our own desires. Now, what is the opposite in that? What is the contrary uh, word that can be used in this verse of your own desires? Well, there is God's desire. So when you have something you want to do the way you think it should go, you have a desire. You are tempted. You are being tempted to stray away from the way God wants it to go, the way God says it should be. Okay, And that temptation eventually lures you away um, from your own desires. Now, this desire, then desire, when it is conceived gives birth to sin. So you're tempted to do things the way you want to do. And when you act on that, when you do what you want to do, it's your life, you are sinning. That's the essential nature of sin. You've been lured away by your own desires and now you are sinning. Now, that sin eventually is going to do something and it's going to grow. And when it is fully grown, it brings forth death. So what the text is supposed to show us this morning, I'm going to argue, is the essential nature of sin as you are lured away to do things the way you want to do them is going to grow. And I love the fact that it doesn't just bring forth death right away. No, no, bro. It starts like an infant and it grows and it grows and it grows until you wake up one day, you look in the mirror and go, what have I done with my life? Like growing up with drug addicts' parents, I see this firsthand with my folks. What are you doing? But sin doesn't just like, oh, yeah, yeah, come here, come here, I want to kill you. No, no, it looks good. It looks good. So in these five chapters, I, I, I hope that's what it does. I, I hope that um, we see the reproof and the correction and the training in righteousness in the direction of jolting us. I hope this passage wakes us up to that. Now, um, if you haven't been from the beginning, this is the last time I'm going to do it. So let me just, uh, just give me grace if you've heard this six times already. Let me tell you how we got to the book of Judges, okay? 
Um, here's what we know. Our, our biblical worldview as Christians, and if you're not a Christian here, this is what we would believe as Christians, that um, for whatever reason, I don't know why it is, God chose a certain people. He chose this group called the Israelites. Now, I don't know the purpose or why he did it. He could have chose the, the Midianites. He could have chose the Philistines. But no, he chose the Israelites. And it's through the Israelites that he continues to work. Well, there's a portion in your Bible in Exodus where they are captured by the Egyptians. They're living there, and essentially they're subjugated to slavery. Well, eventually they're moved out by Moses, right? And so when Christian Bale kind of saves them, they're, they're taken out of that whole deal. And as they're removed um, uh, throughout this whole thing, God doesn't just care about saving their soul, but he cares about their lives now. And so the whole time he's promising them something. Hey, listen, I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you a place you can grow crops and, and raise families. And this land over and over in the, the beginning of your Bible is something called the promised land. And they're working towards this until eventually Moses dies and this guy named Joshua, um, which is the book Joshua, right before Judges, brings them into that promised land. Now before, before all that happened, uh, God took, the 12, or, uh, took the, all, all the Israelites and broke them up into 12 tribes, 12 different groups. And he said, here's the land. I want to give 11 of you uh, uh, groups of land. I want to give you 11 groups, uh, sections of land. Now, um, the, the, the one group that didn't get, the one tribe that didn't get is the Levites. Because as he's handing out land here, you can have this, Judah, you can have this, Dan, you can have this, so on and so forth. He looks to the Levites and he says, there's only going to be 11 uh, groups of land given out to 11 different tribes. Um, but, but the Levites, you're going to be my priests. And um, geographical territory is not your inheritance. I am. Now, it's important you understand that, that the Levites don't get any land. They are God's priests. They are the ones guiding God's people in the way um, and service of him, okay? So, so as they go in, they go into this promised land. Now, God, I think in his beauty and his sovereignty, as all these 11 tribes, the book of Joshua ends with all these 11 tribes getting their own land. And I've used this analogy. It's like the last night of camp or like this big hurrah, right? Yes, you're never, all right, we've got our land. We've got our land. Except here's the deal. There are still people, this is a Canaanite land, who are doing really ridiculous, wicked things that God tells these 11 tribes to cast them out. Get them out of this land. I've given you this land. They're doing horrible things. Remove them from this place. And so the book of Judges picks up from that story. That the 11 tribes are now in there and they should be moving the Canaanites, as they're called. They're in the Canaanite land. Moving the Canaanites out of that land. But slowly but surely, we find out from the jump that Israel fails. That the people of God not only are not casting these people out, but they're slowly becoming like them. And, and we've learned through, through all this is there's been a cycle that we've seen. They've sinned and God puts them into slavery and it's been terrible. But this morning, there is no cycle. The, the, the days of God sending someone to save them, judges, is over. Now, they've wanted sin. They've wanted to, to, to do things their own way. Well, let's see how it plays out. In chapter 17, 18, 19, 20, and 21 are detailed accounts of what that looks like. So, last week we were in um, uh, Judges, ended in Judges 16. This morning we're going to pick it up from Judges 17. We're not obviously going to read all five chapters. I'm going to do my best to paraphrase a lot of this. If you have questions afterwards, I would, I would love to, to answer it. But in Judges 17, um, uh, we're, we're introduced, no more judges, no more guys in charge. We're introduced to a guy named Micah, Okay. And here's the story. Let me just catch you up. Um, Micah is an Israelite, and uh, he has a mother. So in, it's kind of the cultural norm for your older parents not to put them into some retirement home, but rather um, have them live with you. And so he has his mother living with him, taking care of her. And um, she had lost some money. We don't know if Micah took it or not, um, but she had lost some money. Um, and he has this money now, 1,200 pieces of silver, 1,100 pieces of silver. And, and, and he gets that money. He says, hey, mom, I got that money you lost. You, you were super frustrated. Here's that money back. She's 
overwhelmed with joy. Yes, I got that money back. And so what she does is she says, I'm going to dedicate this money to the Lord. Here's how the conversation plays out. I'm picking it up in verse four. So when he, Micah, restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. Okay. So here's what we know. Her heart is legit. Okay, again, from the jump, what I want you to hear is she believes she's doing the right thing. God has given me this money. I want to give it back to God. Now, in giving it back to God, she makes a, a, a metal image, which is a clear indictment against the, the, the Big Ten. If you grew up in church, the Big Ten, the Ten Commandments. The second one is you don't do that. Okay? And so she has a right heart, but she's doing the wrong thing. So Micah likes this. He likes that there's a carved image in his house now. So he takes his son. He says, listen, I know how this whole God thing works. I need a priest. So he takes his son. He says, you're going to be the priest of this new metal image. And he likes where this is going. Now, the Bible uh, kind of, uh, you know, slips in this, I think really uh, comically slips in this little uh, idiosyncrasy. In those days, there was no king of Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So she's doing what she's want. They're doing what they want. It's, It's right in their own eyes. Well, the story continues. Now, remember the Levites. They weren't given any land. So they're nomads at this point because the 11 tribes are failing. They don't have any land. So the, the Levites don't know where to go because they should be serving the Israelites. But the Israelites aren't really establishing land. So there's this Levite who's walking around, comes across the house of Micah. Micah goes, hey, bro, who are you? Well, well I'm, I'm a Levite. A Levite? I know about the Levites. You guys are priests. Why don't you come be a priest for my metal image? Okay. Okay. So here's actually how it plays out. Micah said to him, the Levite, where do you come from? And he said to him, I am a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah, and I am going to sojourn where I can find a place. And Micah said to him, stay with me and be to me a father and a priest, and I will give you 10 pieces of silver a year and a suit of clothes and your living. Uh, for, and your living. And the Levite went in, and the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite, and the young man became the priest, his priest, and was in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. So here's, here's he sees the Levite. He puts the Levite in uh, ordin- ordination. He, he's now serving that metal God. He goes, oh, now I have a Levite. I know Levites are important. I've got them. Now I'm only going to stop twice, once now and at the end to, to make an um, implication statement. But this has to be said because I wholeheartedly believe chapter 17 and 18 is what propels us to see the atrocities that take place in 19 through 21. And here's what we know. I mentioned last week when we were going through Samson that there's an idea in our culture that as long as you believe what you believe and I believe what I believe, as long as I don't infringe on your beliefs, we're okay. Now, I need you to throw your philosophical hat on for a second and and really begin to process the implications of that. Because now what you've done and what I've done is you said, I can believe what I believe and you can believe what you can believe. As long as I don't infringe on your beliefs, the problem is me not infringing on your beliefs is a belief. Me not infringing. So if I believe that I can go around and punch people in the face, you cannot tell me that. Well, no, because it's infringing on my belief. Well, who made that rule? Who made that rule? So, so when we think through the bottom falling out of what we see of relativism, that you can hold to whatever truth you want, and I can hold to whatever truth I want, if I believe 2 plus 2 is 5, that's okay. Because the reality is we live in a world, we live in a culture, that as long as we're not infringing in, on each other, then it's okay. And now this becomes problematic when we deal with God, because you can just not believe moralistically or ethically what you want, but you can make God into whatever you want in our culture. He can be a woman. He can be for ISIS, he can be this, he can be that, right? Like he can do whatever he wants. 
as long as you create them. Tim Keller quoted him a couple times um, as we've gone through the book of Judges, um, really lays out, I think, an important statement. It's a bigger quote, but I'm going to give it to you in two sections. This is the first section that he says um, in this. He says, the real issue in worshiping by images is the desire to shape and revise God spiritually. In modern terms, it is a refusal to let God be himself. In In our lives, we filter out consciously or unconsciously, things about God that our hearts can't accept. In some ways, this is the main sin of our time. How often have you heard someone say, I don't believe in a God like that. I like to think God of, uh, uh, of God as fill in the blank. This is worshiping God through the work of our own hands, and we can do this without fashioning a physical image. So the question on the table is, when Micah makes a metal image out of the, 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 the image of God, what does it look like? What does it look like? Up to this point, there is no, like, God looks like he has long hair. There's none of that. What is Micah making it? No, he's making the image to look like what he wants it to look like. How he would determine. It could be a goat. It could be a bull. It could look like himself. Whatever it is, he has determined what that image is going to look like. Okay, here's the issue. Um, and that when I begin to, to lean into implications, th- this is the thing. I want to speak specifically to those of you who call yourself Christian. That idea, that relativism, that, that, that I can believe what I want, God is what I want him to be, however I want him to be, has slowly but surely seeped into the church. And so, now suddenly, you can hold to whatever you want. Maybe we all agree there's a God, and maybe we all agree that his name is Jesus. But there are certain things that I don't really like that Jesus says, or I don't like the justice side of Jesus, or maybe you're a gun-toting Republican. I don't like the, the soft mercy side of Jesus, whatever it is, right? And so there's a part of you that you don't like where Jesus points you in certain directions, and so you slowly but surely get to critique and make the God that you like. And you're not submitting to any type of absolute, no, no, you like certain things in Scripture, but you don't really like other things. And this becomes extremely problematic. And Tim Keller goes on with this quote to say this. Why is this such a problem? Because it makes it impossible to have a truly personal relationship with God. In a personal relationship with a real person, the only one, uh, I'm sorry, the other can contradict you and upset you. Then you have to wrestle through it to deeper intimacy. But when we simply ignore, either intellectually or psychologically, the parts of God we don't like, it means we don't have a God that can ever contradict our deepest desires or say no to us. We never wrestle with him. We never let him make demands of us. We can end up worshiping a much more comfortable God, but also a non-existent one. So so, um, you love Jesus, you love God, but I've prayed about it, and I'm okay with sleeping with my girlfriend. God's okay with that. Right? So what you've done is, uh, I, I like this part of God. I, I, I can, you know, Robbie Zacharias would say, man is never so creative as when he's justifying his own sin. I'm able to justify and weasel out of figuring out certain things that I like about God. All the while, you're doing what is right in your own eyes, i.e. sinning. There's, it's black and white here. So, so I, I've given this example before, and I'm sorry um, if you've heard this before, but this is the only way I can explain it. If I look at my wife, okay, and I say, Brittany, listen, I love you. I love your long black hair. I love your, your deep brown eyes. Brittany, you're my world. And honestly, like the reality, Brittany, is I love when I sit down and watch football. You come and sit with me. And when you laugh, you, you snort. Like I love that about you. Man, Brittany, like when I'm out there working, like on the deck, and you, you come out and help me and you swing a hammer, I love that. I love that, that we're there. This, this is overflowing. I'm showing you how much I love my wife, Brittany. The problem is 
My wife's name isn't Brittany. She, she doesn't have dark brown, uh, black hair. She doesn't have brown eyes. She has blue eyes. She doesn't snort when she laughs. She ain't ever watching football with me. <laughs> and I've never seen her with a hammer. <laughs> Though I am sincere in who I love, Though I love you, it's so good. I, I care about you. You mean the world to me. Everything I'm saying, I have created someone that does not exist, at least as my wife. Do you understand? And this is what they're doing. Micah has made an image in his, like himself, out of his mind, where it comes from, I don't know. But the reality is it's contradicting God. And this is what propels us. This is what pushes us. This is what has uh, come to Israel. Man, we've got to fight that, and we'll come back to that at the end. But here's how the story goes. Um, there was a, a, a group, one of the 12 tribes named Dan, that, uh, that in, in the beginning of the book of Judges was given a portion of land, and we're told in, in Judges 1 that they actually fail. They go up to try to kick out the Canaanites, and not only do they not kick them out, the Canaanites kick them out. And so now Dan um, essentially wants to go around, and they're going to find land, but now what they do is they say, well, we can't kick out the Canaanites, so we're going to kick out the Israelites, our own people. And so they travel and say, we like this part of land, and they start fighting a certain portion of the Israelites, and they kick them out, okay? Well, on their way back, they see Micah and his shrine, and they like what they see. And so they go, and they say, hey, we want that, so they're going to take it. They take the metal image, and remember the, the Levite priest, they take him as well. So here's, here's what's crazy. They're, they're done, and honestly, uh, chapter 18 is just a story of like, we're going to do what we want. There's a portion of war. We've taken the, this shrine. Micah comes after him and says, what are you doing? You've taken this false god from me, or you've taken this idol from me. Why are you taking it? Deal with it is essentially Dan's answer. But here's what we come to find out. That Levite, who hasn't been given a name yet. Remember the Levite who's wandering around and is now the, the priest of the, the, the shrine, that metal image? Is Moses' grandson. So not only... Has Israel gotten this bad? They've gotten this bad quick. Like, this is how fast it happens. It, like, takes us over. And, like, he's, he's swannering, yeah, I can, be, I, can, I can follow God. I can be the priest. No, the reality is it's Moses' grandson. To the Hebrew mind, they read that and go, holy cow. Moses, like our savior Moses, the one who rescued us out of Egypt, Moses, that Moses, his grandson, is serving a false god? That's the end of chapter 18. We get into chapter 19, and this is where it gets brutal. And chapters 19, 20, and 21 are essentially the explicit content portion of the story. And um, I'm going to lay it out for you and, and, and do my best. Um, but there, there is a lot of text, and I would, I would challenge you to read it on your own. You know, read it to your kids when they go to bed, whatever you need to do. Um, um, I, I want to be fair up to this point as well. Chapter 19 again reminds us, the scripture slowly slips in. Hey, just a reminder, before we go on, remember there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Just remember that. Just remember that as I continue to tell this story. So here's uh, how the story starts. We're introduced to another Levite. We're not given his name. And to be honest with you, I think that's intentional. Um, th this Levite is meant to symbolize like God's holy people. This is what he has done. So there's this Levite and he has a concubine. If you don't know what a concubine is, a concubine is kind of like this second wife slash slave, sex, uh, you know, sex toy slash like girlfriend slash servant. It's really this odd thing. But here's what we know. God never, ever says it's okay to have a concubine. Very much so not for a Levite. And this Levite has a concubine. Well, she is unfaithful to him. And she runs off after sleeping with someone else, runs off and goes to live with her father. Four months goes by and he goes, I got to go back and get my concubine. So he rolls over and says, listen, I need to take her with me. And the dad is there and says, hey, 
hey, yes, you can definitely take her, but it's kind of getting late. Why don't you come here and just drink for a little bit? Let's get married. You know, that, that'll be good. And then you can leave in the morning. So he has some, some Budweiser. He falls asleep and then he wakes up. The next day, he's like, all right, we've got to go. Now, uh, the, the dad goes, well, it's kind of early. Why don't you get some food in your system and then you can be on your way. So they eat breakfast. They eat lunch. All right, we got to go. Come on, man. It's, it's getting late. You won't make it to the next town. Why don't you just stay here tonight? Fine. Stay here. They get drunk again. Stay the night. Wake up the next day. All right, I've got to go. Dude, I got Chipotle for lunch. Just stay. Okay. All right, I'll stay. That's fine. So he stays. Well, it's getting late again. Why don't you just stay again another night? All right, I'll stay another night. So he stays, gets drunk again, stays that night. This is everything a Levite would never do. So finally, he wakes up the next day and goes, I'm leaving. That dad goes, okay, fine, leave. I'm, I'm out. So he takes his concubine and they start to wander. And um, as they go, as they, they, they wander into, uh, uh, you know, into the certain city. So let me read this portion of scripture. Um, hopefully it will be helpful. Um, actually, let me not read this portion. Let me, let me catch you up to this. Sorry. Um, so they, they eventually get into this city called Gibeah. Now, you don't re- really need to remember the, the name of the city. But as uh, this Levite and concubine arrive in Gibeah, they, they make it into Gibeah, which Gibeah is an Israelite town. It is a town ran by another one of those tribes called the Benjamites. Now, they come into this town. And as they come into this town, um, they have nowhere to stay. They're knocking on doors. Hey, can we stay there? Here, can we stay here? No. So they're sitting in the town square, kind of the middle of the city. And this, this Ephraim dude, this old guy, comes in from the field and he says, what are you doing? Well, we knocked on all the doors. We couldn't find a place to stay. Well, just come stay with me. Okay. So now this Ephraim, Ephraim uh, guy, this Israelite guy, and, and, and this uh, Levite and his concubine are staying together. Now this Ephraim has a virgin daughter and he has his concubine. And they're staying in the city and they're just partying. They're just having fun. They've made it to this town. It's a good time. The scripture then describes the next event like this. In verse, uh, we're in verse uh, 22. And as they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows. So they're making their hearts city, the, the Ephraimite and the, the, um, the Levite. Behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly since this man has come into my house. Do not do this vile thing. Now listen, they're not like, hey, come on out. We want to play Scrabble with him. No, they they want him to come out to know him is to have sexual relationships with him. They they want to sleep with this new man who is in this this town, okay? And, And the guy at the house is like, hey, this is bad. This is a vile thing. Don't do this. Behold, here are my, this is what the, the, the head of the house, the Ephraimite says, behold, here are my virgin, here's my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now, violate them and do to them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man, the, the, the head of the house, the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. So now, here's the Ephraimite and the, the, the Levite. They're sitting in the house. These men want to sleep with the Levite. No, this is a terrible thing. He takes uh, the Levite's concubine. He says, have your way with her. And so all night long, they gang rape her. They just rape her all night long. And so then the text goes on to say this. And as dawn began to break, they let her go. And as the morning appeared, the, the, the woman came, fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. And her master rose up in the morning. And when he opened the doors of the house and went out uh, to go on his way, behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house and with her hands on the threshold. So after she's raped all night long, she tumbles towards the house again, 
eventually fading, putting her hands on the doorstep, and she was literally raped to death. So now she's dead. Now, before I get into his response, if, if you know your Bible well, um, this story immediately conjures up an earlier story in your Bible. It's actually in the book of um, uh, Genesis, and it's in chapter 19. Um, and, and what takes place in this chapter is essentially God has looked at a city to destroy a certain city. Um, and, and, and he wants to destroy the city because it has been wicked, terribly, terribly wicked. So he sends an angel to this city to rescue somebody that's in there. And so here's this guy. He's, he's in this, and the, the angel comes to the city, and he's er, into the house. And the, the people in the city see that this angel's coming to the house, and they come banging on the door. We want to sleep with the angel. All these things are mirroring crystal clear way, in crystal clear ways exactly what happened in the city. And so we want to know this guy. We want to know this guy. We want to sleep with him. And so eventually the angels cast this light, shines it, and they get away. But here's what's, what's bizarre about this whole thing. The original readers of this would be hearing this story and they would go, wait a minute, I know what's happened. I've heard this story. This, this, this goes with, with Genesis 19. That city was called Sodom. To the Israelite, to the original reader, that this angel was almost himself, like brought on, men came upon him. They view Sodom as like the bottom end. To, like it's sinful it's wicked, so much so that Jesus makes a declaration. If I would have done miracles even in a place like Sodom and Gomorrah, even that, that evil of a place, we get the term sodomy from Sodom. And here now is not some out ethereal group doing this. No, no, no. Remember that original people that God chose? He made a covenant with, he's protected, and he's given land. They are wicked. They are doing the evil acts. This has fallen on them. And what happens next would be comical if it wasn't so ridiculously terrible. As the man opens the door, her hands on the threshing floor, he said to her, get up, let us be going. But there was no answer. It's important here that like, we see the desperation of the text, that it's meant to jolt you, right? Because he slept. He got his aid in. He slept on his hay pillow for whatever it is. He's good. All the while, she's being ravaged outside. And she's being ravaged outside, so he wouldn't be. So here, here he is, laying, he opens the door, he says, hey, get up, we got to roll. So not only has Israel done this wicked thing, they are so absolutely apathetic to the atrocity that is before them, it's like disgusting. The text goes on. He now suddenly being upset, he then put her on his donkey, and the man rose up and went away to his home. And when he entered his house, he took a knife and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her up limb by limb into 12 pieces and sent her throughout the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said such a thing has never, uh, never happened or has been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day, consider it, take counsel and speak. So the, the, the Levite sees what's happened. This should not be happening in Israel. He himself is jolted, takes her body, cuts it up into 11 pieces, and sends it out to all the tribes. So he can see, he cut enough fingers, hands, arms, legs, whatever it is, and he, he sends a little note. Oh, great, we've got the mail, and there's an arm, and he, he sees the letter, and he's like, okay, wow. And the story is being told. Hey, we rolled into a city, these men tried to rape us, but instead, this is what they did to my concubine. And so now the 11 tribes are heated. 
Ten of them are anyway, because the, the, the Levites are, are, are out and, and the, the Benjamites, remember this um, Gilead city, or Gibeah city is a Benjamite city. So here's the Benjamite. The other ten tribes go, this shouldn't be happening. Let's go destroy them. So they go to the, the, the village. Hey, hey, Benjamin, we want all the people that did this atrocity. We want to punish them. The Benjamites inside their fortified city go, no, we're not giving them up. And so what you go on to read is this ridiculous war. Now because the Benjamites don't want to give up these wicked people because they're okay with them, they go to war with the other ten tribes. And so the Benjamites are against all the, the, the rest of Israel, and they're going to war, and they're going to war. At first it looks like the Benjamites are going to uh, win, but in the end the Israelites win. So we're left with actually another problem. So as they're at the door, the Benjamites say, no, you can't have them. Fine, we're going to war. And in the middle of this war, the other ten tribes go, you know what? We hate the Benjamites. They should have done this. Let's make an oath right now. Here's our oath. Even if some of them survive, none of our daughters will ever get to marry any of them. They will eventually die off. So these ten tribes make this oath. All the cities, all the people, they, no, the Benjamites will die. And so in the middle of the war, 600 of the Benjamites, as they lose, 600 of the Benjamites, the only 600 left flee into the forest, and the story is kind of done there. So, so now they're left with another problem, and here's the problem. David Bellman picks up on it. He's a formal scholar of Judges. He's been really helpful for me even walking through this whole book. This is what he says. He says, after a staggering, uh, staggering casualties on both sides, the Israelites are almost successful in wiping, out, uh, wiping Benjamin out. Of the 25,000 plus Benjamin men, only 600 survived the Civil War. What happens next would be comical if the whole situation were not so tragic. Realizing that Benjamin is decimated, they cry out to God, O Yahweh, the God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel that that today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel? Let me me read what the Bible actually says in verses uh, 1 through 3 of chapter 21. Now the men of Israel had sworn, as you said, they make an oath, sworn at Mizpah, no no one of us shall give his daughter in marriage to Benjamin. Verse 2, and the people came to Bethel and sat there till evening before God, and they lifted up their voices and wept bitterly, and they said, O Lord, the God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel that today there should be one uh, tribe lacking in Israel? So I want you to, if you haven't caught on to the problem, here's the problem. We came in and we destroyed the Benjamites. Our, Our daughters will never marry the Benjamites. They're over. Oh, crap. We've destroyed the Benjamites. We have 12 tribes. Now we only have 11. God, why would you let this happen? Why would you take another tribe? Do you want us to, to only have 11 tribes? You originally gave us 12 tribes. And so they come up with a plan. I know what we can do. Let's, fi- let's figure out who was there that didn't make the oath. We know 600 f- uh, fled into the forest. We can find those 600 Benjamites. We can find one of our people who didn't make it. Was there anybody there who didn't make an oath? And this is what the, the scripture says. Now, the, in, the men of Israel had, um, had sworn to Mizpah. Oh, I'm sorry, the next part. That's uh, further down, verses 8 and 9. And they said, uh, what... What one of there of the tribes of Israel did not come up to the Lord at Mizpah, to Mizpah? And behold, no one had come to the camp from Japesh Gilead to the assembly. For when the people were mustered, behold, none of the inhabitants of Japesh Gilead was there. So here's what they say. Hey, was there anyone there that, that, didn't, that wasn't part of the war that didn't swear at Mizpah? Wait a minute. You know what? There was a small group of people, Japesh Gilead. They weren't there. They didn't swear. Perfect. They're Israelites. Here's what we're going to do. Go get the 600 men. Bring them in. We're going to go into Japesh Gilead's village. We're going to kill all the men. We're going to kill all the women. We're going to kill all the children. And all that's left is take the virgin daughters. Take the virgin women. That's all we want to survive. So they go in. They take the virgin daughters. And they say, yeah! We got 400 virgin daughters. You 600. The tribe of Benjamin's going to survive. 
here's another problem, though. We're short 200. But here's what we know. That, that the people of God, Israel, every year send out women to do this annual dance. When they come out, we'll kidnap 200 more of them. And now the 600 Benjamites have 600 wives who've been kidnapped. Their family was killed, but they get to marry a Benjamite. And so now 600 of them, yes, we've solved the problem. And then it says this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The end. The end. That is literally how the book of Judges ends. Now, I need you to feel what you're feeling right now like this. Are you serious? Like how terrible, how bleak, how awful. Now, um, if you've been a theological neat neck and, and you've probably noticed, we've never said who wrote the book of Judges because we don't know for sure, but you've also probably noticed we haven't said when the book of Judges um, was, was originally read or written. And what we know historically, it was written probably sometime um, as historical accounts continue to go on, put on, on paper, sometimes after the kings. Like when Israel's really starting to struggle and they're really starting to fail, they would read the story of Judges and they would be jolted. Like I need you to feel that weight of the original readers because maybe you yourself have been raped or abused, or maybe you yourself know somebody who's been raped or abused, and you feel the weight of this, and you go, that is terrible. That is awful. It shouldn't be like that. And, and hear me, that's good. I, I think that's what the, the, the goal of the book is, is supposed to jolt you, to remind you this is what it looks like. And here's all I can leave you with at the end of this is, this, to be honest, three implications. And I, and I hope in some ways, as we as Christians, if we're going to address this, if we're going to, to really trust in 2 Timothy to know that all scripture, including this, is God-breathed and is profitable to grow us as Christians, what are we supposed to do with this? So here's what I would say. The first thing is this, um, and all three of them build on top of each other, but the first two are things that we have to reject. Through, the, through this story, um, here's what we find. First, it starts with a man whose concubine is raped. And his solution to that, that, that uh, woman being raped is to cut her up into pieces. It's right in his own eyes. I know what I'll do. I'll cut her up into pieces. And now there's a woman cut up into pieces and sent to these 12 tribes. And the 12 tribes, and then the, the, the tribes of God hear this and they go, well, I know what's right in my, my own eyes. Excuse me. I know what's right in my own eyes. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to go destroy the people that did this. So now we have the people who are going to destroy the people to, to do this, and they destroy the people that did this, and then they go, oh my gosh, now I don't know what to do, but I know what we can do. We'll kill more people to fix our problem, but we're still 200 people short, so I know what we can do. We'll kill 200 more, or, or other families and get 200 more people, and that will solve the problem. And all the while, they're doing what is right in their own eyes. If you look at this, it's kind of a domino effect to go, hey, listen, it's, yeah, I mean, technically, that did, you wanted to get Israel all fired up because your concubine was cut up? Well, that happened. You wanted to destroy Benjamites? Well, yeah, that happened. You, you wanted to get wives and you had to murder families? Well, well, it happened. You did solve the problem. Let's not get it twisted. You did, get, you did absolutely solve the problem. The issue is you, you did it your way. So here's the first thing that I think is really important for us to understand in the household of God. If we are to push against relativism, if we're not to compromise, we have to reject the idea that your way is the right way. You have opinions on money, you have opinions on marriage. You have opinions on sexuality. You have opinions on parenting. You have opinions on life, your vocation. You have a lot of opinions. But just hear me when I say this, and, and I'm going to say this as gently as I possibly can. Um, you cannot be a Christian if your opinions trump God's opinion. You can't be. 
So you bring to the table all of your thoughts, but the reality is you have to reject that your wisdom, your smarts is better than what God says. Because you're going to read the text and you're going to go, God, I don't know why you view homosexuality that way. You're going to read the text. I don't know why you view parenting that way. I don't like that. And the reality is we're told in 2nd or 1st Corinthians that your wisdom, all your smarts, our collective wisdom as humanity is like God's foolishness. So the first thing you have to reject is that your way is the right way, that you, you need to understand that you have to, at your core as a Christian, for your good, which we'll get into in a second, is to submit to the law of God. But the people of God did what was right in their own eyes over and over and over, and all we saw was pain. Here's the second thing, and this is where it gets kind of good. The second thing is you have to reject the idea that that first idea is compromising itself. You have to reject the idea that when you submit to God, you're settling for less. You have to reject the idea that God's view on sex is suppression. You have to reject the idea the way that God views money is awful. The way, the, the way that God views parenting is wrong. When you reject the idea that in some ways you are, you are settling for less... You're wrong, because here's what we know. Not only is God all-powerful, not only is he all-knowing, not only is his wisdom great, he is also all-loving. So when he comes to you and says, hey, listen, son, daughter, I want you to do this, it's not because he wants you to settle for less, man. He wants you to settle for the best. He knows your joy better than you know your joy. And here you are settling for synthetic versions. Well, I know if I do this, my I'm going to settle like this. Well, we're missing people to, to marry somebody. I'm going to do it like this. And you're settling, and you're settling, and you're settling because you're doing what is right in your own eyes. But God is not just all-knowing, man. He's all-loving. So what he brings to the table is for your best good. It's, it's your ultimate joy. You want to experience drinking and experience the way God has laid it out. You want to experience sex and experience the way God has laid it out. It's free. I was, uh, I w- I was talking in this leadership um, thing that we do called Surge. It's what we use for Redemption Peoria. And Lainey Cray told me a story, and I'd forgot about this story, but it's by G.K. Chesterton in his book, uh, Orthodoxy. It's at the end of his book, Orthodoxy. And he tells a story about... Um, he says, what this is like when we submit to God, it's like people, um, these kids, you know, five to like 14, playing soccer next to a cliff. And so they're playing to a, to a, uh, next to a cliff, and it's a sheer drop off. They will die if they go off this cliff. And so they're playing soccer, they're playing soccer, and they're having fun. It's good. But one day, somebody comes and builds a wall around the soccer field. And now suddenly, there's parameters. They can't just like slide out of bounds. But the reality is, as you continue to watch the kids play, they're really playing soccer now. The fear of falling off the cliff is no longer longer there. The idea that boundaries were put around the soccer field has them slide in the way they want to, has them dive in the way they want to. They can truly play freely. This is God's law. James 2 says it's the law of liberty. It binds you, liberty, freedom. It binds you to truly be free. Maybe, just maybe, you would not believe the lie that autonomy is ultimate. Like autonomy, that your way being the right way, maybe, just maybe, your way is actually what's worse for you. So that's the second thing we have to reject. And the last thing is, um, I think, simple enough. Um, in the, at the end of the first century, as Christians are being persecuted left and right, there's an Aramaic word that they would continue to use. Greek didn't matter. They were, they were Greeks alike, you know, different tribes. They would use the same Aramaic word. It's, if you grew up in church, you've probably heard this word before. It's called Maranatha. 
Um, they called this the baptism of the blood. Christians were being persecuted so much. They were losing friends and family. They were feeling the weight of uh, the end of Judges, watching um, rapes happen and watching pain happen, watch, being eaten, eaten by lions happen. And they're watching this, and all they can cry is Maranatha. And simply translated, it just means, come, Lord Jesus, come. Please, return. I read a passage like this and I recognize that a woman being gang raped is even happening somewhere right now in this world. A child molestation, brokenness, it's everywhere, man. It's everywhere. And all we can do is go, I know that Jesus came and I believe that, but I feel the weight of sin. I, I feel the weight uh, of struggling. I feel the weight of pain. But I also know this, as, as Paul continues to put in the epistles, that there's this hope within me. That reminds me that, no, 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 but it's not always going to be like this. See, Jesus came not just to save my soul, but to establish a kingdom. And that one day things will be made right. And every sad thing will become untrue. And, 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 and Jesus will fix this. And, and justice will happen where it needs to happen. And these people will be punished in the way they need to. And grace will go where it needs to. Because he's all powerful. He's full of wisdom. But he's also all loving. I can trust in him to do that well. Because he knows all. Let me finish with... A quote from a guy named Cornelius Plantica talking about this idea. This is what he says. It's not up here, so you're just going to have to listen. God hates sin not just because it violates his law, but because it violates peace. It breaks peace. It interferes with the way it's supposed to be. See, the story of the fall tells us that sin corrupts. It divides what God has joined together and joins together what God has divided. It implodes and explodes certain pushing back towards the formless void from which it came. So what he says is, in the beginning of creation, there was this formless void. There was nothing. And God made beauty, and he made it the way it's supposed to be in creation. And it's flowing, and it's awesome. But when sin takes place, sin is trying to bring us backwards. It's trying to, 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 to remind us of how we started, to subjugate us to a formless void. It doesn't care about us. It doesn't want us. The reality is God is trying to show you the free way, the beautiful way of progress, his way. He's all loving. He's all powerful. He's all good. May our cry be when we read verses like this or see atrocities on TV. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Maranatha. May we not trust in ourselves and our own ways, but may we have a king and trust in his ways, not do what is right in our own eyes. Let me pray for you.